Welcome back <clears throat> to the Hemingway List podcast for book eight, <clears throat> chapter eight. Sorry for yesterday's episode sounding so bad. I say that as I adjust my microphone and probably made a really loud noise. But I do apologize for yesterday's episode. The sound quality was terrible. Really, really bad. Not good enough. I've gone back to my portable microphone. Still not my new setup. I haven't set up my new setup yet. But it won't be far away. Um, but I've gone back to my portable microphone because at least it sounds a lot better than what happened yesterday. All right. This chapter focuses on Natasha's point of view. How do you think Sonia's impressions of the opera and the society gathered there would differ from her cousins? And how do you think she would feel about seeing Dolokhov again? What about Boris and Julie? And what is it about Natasha that captures Helena's attention? And what do you think Natasha admires in Helena? How do you think these two would get along if they met? That is a good question between the points of views of Sonia and Natasha at this grand opera. I feel like Natasha would have stars in her eyes. Everything's beautiful. Everything's grand. Everything's excellent. Life is good. Sonia would be looking at it all from a little bit of an outsider's point of view and maybe a little bit more cynically. Tetriski says, I've been behind since about March and just caught up. Better late than never. Well done. Welcome back. Natasha at the opera felt like a zoo animal for everyone to gawk at. And she was too depressed to return much gawking. Oh yeah, true. Yeah. I think I was getting mixed up with when she went to that event earlier, the ball, and she was like loving it. Yeah, she did feel a bit like that. Helena caught her attention, however, maybe because Helena had pulled off the best match when she snagged Pierre and then lived up to the expectations of composure and beauty society put on her. True. Yeah, I can see Helena being impressive to Natasha, for sure. Helena is impressive, although she's also quite horrible. Uh, Warren Kovofi says, I think Natasha is just upset. That terrible first encounter with Maya, not to mention just exhausted emotionally from waiting for Andre to return. And she's having a hard time enjoying herself at the opera. It doesn't help that she sees several people she's familiar with, including her former love interest, Boris, that are engaged or already married. Although Andre's year-long absence isn't her fault, it looks like Natasha feels self-conscious about it. Very, very cool. Let's just keep reading shall we? Because I am like six or seven days into just this crazy amount of stuff to do. And, uh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta hit the sack. It looks like a long chapter two, so let's go. Chapter six. Sorry, chapter nine. The floor of the stage consisted of smooth boards. At the sides was some painted cardboard representing trees, and at the back was a cloth stretched over boards. In the centre of the stage sat some girls in red bodices and white skirts. One very fat girl in a white silk dress sat apart on a low bench, to the back of which a piece of green cardboard was glued. They all sang something. When they had finished their song, the girl in white went up to the prompter's box, and a man with tight silk trousers over his stout legs and holding a plume and a dagger went up to her and began singing, waving his arms about. First the man in the tight trousers sang alone, then she sang, then they both paused while the orchestra played, and the man fingered the hand of the girl in white, obviously awaiting the beat to start singing with her. 
They sang together, and everyone in the theatre began clapping and shouting, while the man and woman on the stage who represented lovers began smiling, spreading out their arms and bowing. After her life in the country and in her present serious mood, all this seemed grotesque and amazing to Natasha. She could not follow the opera nor even listen to the music. She saw only the painted cardboard and the queerly dressed men and women who moved, spoke and sang so strangely in that brilliant light. She knew what it was all meant to represent, but it was so pretentiously false and unnatural that she first felt ashamed for the actors and then amused at them. She looked at the faces of the audience, seeking in them the same sense of ridicule and perplexity she herself experienced, but they all seemed attentive to what was happening on the stage, and expressed delight which to Natasha seemed feigned. I suppose it has to be like this, she thought. She kept looking round in turn at the rows of pomaded heads in the stalls, and then at the semi-nude women in the boxes especially at Helena in the next box, who, apparently quite unclothed, sat with a quite tranquil smile, not taking her eyes off the stage, and feeling the bright light that flooded the whole place and the warm air heated by the crowd, Natasha little by little began to pass into a state of intoxication she had not experienced for a long while. She did not realise who and where she was, <coughs> Excuse me. nor what was going on before her. As she looked and thought, the strangest fancies unexpected and disconnectedly passed through her mind. The idea occurred to her of jumping onto the edge of the box and singing the aria the actress was singing. Then she wished to touch with her fan an old gentleman sitting not far from her, then to lean over to Helena and tickle her. At that moment, when all was quiet before the commencement of a song, a door leading to the stalls on the side nearest to Rostov's box creaked, and the steps of a belated arrival were heard, that's Karagin, whispered Shinjin. Countess Bezukova turned, smiling to the newcomer, and Natasha, following the direction of that look, saw an exceptionally handsome adjutant approaching their box with a self-assured yet courteous bearing. This was Anatole Karagin, whom she had seen and noticed long ago at the ball in Petersburg. She was now in an adjutant's uniform with one epaulette and a shoulder knot. He moved with a restrained swagger, which would have been ridiculous had he not been so good-looking and had his handsome face not worn such an expression of good-humoured complacency and gaiety. Though the performance was proceeding, proceeding, he walked deliberately down the carpeted gangway, his sword and spurs slightly jingling and his handsome, perfumed head held high. Having looked at Natasha, he approached his sister, laid his well-gloved hand on the edge of her box, nodded to her, and leaning forward, asked a question with a motion toward Natasha. Maze Chaumont, said he, evidently referring to Natasha, who did not exactly hear his words, but understood them, from the movement of his lips. Then he took his place in the first row of the stalls, and sat beside Dolokhov, nudging with his elbow, in a friendly and offhand way, that Dolokhov, whom others treated so fawningly, he winked at him gaily, smiled, and rested his foot against the orchestra screen. How like the brother is to the sister, remarked the count, and how handsome they both are. Shin Shin lowered his voice, began to tell, lowering his voice, began to tell the count of some intrigue of Karagin's in Moscow, and Natasha tried to overhear it just because he had said she was charmant. The first act was over. In the stalls, everyone began moving, going out and coming in. 
Boris came to the Rostovs' box, received their congratulations very simply, and raised his eyebrows with an absent-minded smile, conveyed to Natasha and Sonia his fiancée's invitation to her wedding, and went away. Natasha, with a gay, coquettish smile, talked to him and congratulated on his approaching wedding, that same Boris with whom she had formerly been in love. In the state of intoxication she was in, everything seemed simple and natural. The scantily clad Helena smiled at everyone in the same way, and Natasha gave Boris a similar smile. Helena's box was filled and surrounded from the stalls by the most distinguished and intellectual men, who seemed to vie with one another in their wish to let everyone see that they knew her. During the whole of that entract, Kuragin stood with Dolokhov in front of the orchestra partition, looking at the Rostov's box. Natasha knew he was talking about her, and with this afforded her pleasure. She even turned so that he should see her profile in what she thought was the most becoming aspect. Before the beginning of the second act, Pierre appeared in the stalls. The Rostovs had not seen him since their arrival. His face looked sad, and he had grown still stouter since Natasha last saw him. He passed up to the front rows, not noticing anyone. Anatole went up to him and began speaking to him, looking at and indicating the Rostovs' box. On seeing Natasha, Pierre grew animated and hastily passing between the rows, came toward their box. When he got there, he leaned on his elbows and, smiling, talked to her for a long time. While conversing with, with Pierre, Natasha heard a man's voice in Countess Bezukova's box, and something told her it was Karagin. She turned, and their eyes met. Almost smiling, he gazed straight into her eyes with such an enraptured, caressing look that it seemed so strange to be so near him, to look at him like that to be so sure he admired her and not to be acquainted with him. In the second act there was scenery representing tombstones. There was a round hole in the canvas to represent the moon. Shades were raised over the footlights and, the and from horns and contrabass came deep notes while many people appeared from right and left, wearing black cloaks and holding things like daggers in their hands. They began waving their arms, then some other people ran in and began dragging away the maiden who had been in white and was now in light blue. They did not drag her away at once, but sang with her for a long time, and then, at last, dragged her off, and behind the scenes something metallic was struck three times, and everyone knelt down and sang a prayer. All these things were rep repeatedly interrupted by the enthusiastic shouts of the audience. During this act, every time Natasha looked towards the stalls, she saw Anatole Karagin with an arm thrown across the back of his chair, staring at her. She was pleased to see that he was captivated by her, and it did not occur to her that there was anything wrong in it. When the second act was over, Countess Bezukova rose, turned to the Rostov's box, her whole bosom completely exposed, beckoned the old count with a gloved finger, and paying no attention to those who had entered her box, began talking to him with an amiable smile. Do make me acquainted with your darling, charming daughters, she said. The whole town is singing their praises, and I don't even know them. Natasha rose and curtsied to the splendid countess. She was so pleased by praise from this brilliant beauty that she blushed with pleasure. I want to become a Moscovite too now, said Helena. How is it you are not ashamed to bury such pearls in the country? Countess Bezukova quite deserved her reputation of being a fascinating woman. She could say what she did not think, especially what was flattering quite simply and naturally. Dear Count, you must let me look after your daughters, though I am not staying here long this time, nor are you. I'll try to amuse them. I've already heard much of you in Petersburg and wanted to get to know you, she said to Natasha with her stereotyped 
and lovely smile. I'd heard about you from my page, Drubetskoy. Have you heard he is getting married? And also from my husband friend Bolkonsky, Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, she went on with special emphasis, implying that she knew of his relation to Natasha. To get better acquainted, she asked that one of the young ladies should come into her box for the rest of the performance, and Natasha moved over to it. The scene of the third act represented a palace in which many candles were burning and pictures of knights with short beards hung on the walls. In the middle stood what were probably a king and a queen. The king waved his right arm and, evidently nervous, sang something badly and sat down on a crimson throne. The maiden, who had been first in white and then in light blue, now wore only a smock and stood beside the throne with her hair down. She sang something mournfully, addressing the queen, but the king waved his arm severely, and men and women with bare legs came in from both sides and began dancing all together. Then the violins played very shrilly and merrily, and one of the women with thick bare legs and thin arms separating from the others went behind the wings, adjusted her bodice, returned to the middle of the stage and began jumping and striking one foot rapidly against the other. In the stalls, everyone clapped and shouted bravo, then... One of the men went into a corner of the stage. The cymbals and horns in the orchestra struck up more loudly, and this man with bare legs jumped very high and waved his feet about very rapidly. He was Duport, who received 60,000 rubles a year from this art. Everybody in the stalls, boxes and galleries began clapping and shouting with all their might, and the man stopped and began smiling and bowing to all sides. Then other men and women danced with bare legs. The king again shouted to the sound of the music, and they all began singing. But suddenly a storm came on, chromatic scales and diminished sevenths were heard in the orchestra. Everyone ran off, again dragging one of their number away, and the curtain dropped. Once more there was a terrible noise and clatter among the audience, and with rapturous faces everyone began shouting, Dupour, Dupour, Dupour. Natasha no longer thought this strange. She looked about with pleasure, smiling joyfully. Isn't the board delightful? Helena asked her. Oh yes, replied Natasha. Alright, that was chapter 9. Thank you for listening to that. Excellent to spend some time with you. I'm going to bed. Thanks for listening. Bye.